The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Antarctica is a land about to be exposed over its well-guarded secrets and ancient hidden mysteries. In 1955, as a result of a secret agreement reached between the Eisenhower administration and a German breakaway group in Antarctica, a transnational corporate space program began to emerge. The secret infusion of personnel and resources from U.S. military contractors into Antarctica allowed this transnational corporate program to steadily grow into a major space power, which would eventually surpass and eclipse the secret space programs run by the U.S. Navy, Air Force, and the classified space programs of other nations. Whistleblower claims substantiate that many of the classified programs conducted there violate the 1961 Antarctic Treaty and constitute crimes against humanity due to the abuse of a captive slave labor force. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. I always love to hear from you. Today's special guest is Dr. Michael Sala. In his new book titled Antarctica's Hidden History, Corporate Foundations of Secret Space Programs, he daringly exposes the major corporations involved in these illegal programs and how the truth is hidden from company shareholders and the public. Today, Antarctica's secrets are slowly being revealed by the increasing volcanic activity that is melting the massive ice shelves, exposing ancient artifacts and crashed extraterrestrial spacecraft. Full disclosure of Antarctica's history and current events involving multiple space programs and transnational corporations will vitally aid in transforming our planet and prepare humanity for the major geological events that lie ahead as the melting ice unveils all that has previously been hidden. His website is exopolitics.org and directly from Pune, Hawaii, I would like to welcome my friend and special guest, Dr. Michael Sala, back to Veritas. Hello, Michael, and welcome back. How are you? Aloha, Mel. It's uh, good to be back. It's been a long time, I think about a year. No, it's been, I believe, uh, two years now. So I'm glad that you're back because I, I've been thinking about Antarctica lately. And recently, you said I just wrote a book about Antarctica. And well, here you are. So first of all, what prompted you to write a book about Antarctica? And what is really happening there? I want to know. Well, Antarctica is an area that uh, I've been interested in uh, since I got involved in exopolitics uh, back in 2001. Um, as you probably are well aware, there have always been rumours of uh, Germany having set up a base in Antarctica. Operation High Jump was something that people have always puzzled over. But uh, I, it was always elusive in terms of getting really first-hand a testimony about what's really going on in Antarctica. Uh, but that really began to change um, just a couple of years ago. First, there was this uh, flight engineer 
uh, a Navy flight engineer who did an interview with Linda Moulton Howe where he talked about what he had seen in Antarctica. And, and that was very interesting uh, because that was firsthand uh, witness testimony from someone who had been there. Um, but the one, the thing that really convinced me that this was a, a project that needed to be written up in book form was uh, when Corey Good described having been down to Antarctica not once but twice, uh, having been taken down there as part of this kind of inner earth civilization that are uh, feeding him information and that he's been on board their craft that have twice gone down to Antarctica to basically conduct surveillance missions of the secret bases that were set up down there and of the ancient artifacts that have been recently discovered there. And and, and Corey's uh, information uh, has been pretty consistent with what the scientific community has been recently releasing in terms of giant caverns in Antarctica, thermally heated, that that is conducive to life. And so I think that when you look at the whole package in terms of, you know, what eyewitnesses have been saying about Antarctica, what the uh, scientific community has recently been putting out about events and discoveries in Antarctica with some of the historic documents concerning Germans and Operation Paperclip. You know, when it all came together, I thought it was a pretty compelling book. Well, let me ask you this, and I hope it's not offensive to you or to Mr. Good, but if Corey Good's information is accurate... Isn't he violating a military oath? And how do we know that what he's saying is not disinformation? Well, um, I've been working with him now since uh, March of uh, 2015. And, uh, and, and in that time, I've really found nothing that makes me doubt his story. I mean, I have worked with other people for, for over a period of years, and sometimes things do happen that makes me doubt their story. Um, but uh, in, as far as Corey Good is concerned, th there's nothing there that uh, really uh, makes me question it. And in fact, um, I'm privy to some personal information where um, let's just say I traveled recently to, to Europe and I met with some people that were providing um, kind of pe personal services to, to Corey, uh, protection services, shall we say, and these were high-level people in the intelligence community and, and they clearly believed what he was saying was, was true and, and, and these are very senior people in the um, intelligence community in NATO. Um, as similarly, I've met people or, or actually communicated with people from the Defense Intelligence Agency who uh, have also communicated about Corey and, and they believe he's, he's genuine. And, and in my own personal research, um, I've, I've found what he says to be uh, very uh, consistent with some of the public uh, documents that are released or public events that that, are, that seem to happen synchronistically with his revelations. So yes, so at the end of the day, I found nothing all right with his testimony, but I found a lot of uh, corroborating um, support from high-level people within the intelligence community, as, as well as a lot of uh, synchronicities with uh, things that people would describe as kind of circumstantial evidence, such as, you know, him talking about uh, secret uh, slave bases on Mars and then uh, the interplanetary 
um, the British Interplanetary Society organizes a conference uh, dealing with uh, slave bases on Mars. You know, how do you remove a, a Mars dictator? That that actually was <laughs> a topic in in a in a British Interplanetary Society meeting in London, where they had approximately thirty five. Uh, people uh, from the scientific community, the uh, in, uh, kind of aerospace community, meeting to discuss that that very topic. So you know, all of these things, when you add them up, to my mind, make Corey Good a, a credible eyewitness. No, that's fair enough. But what about the military oath? Isn't there some kind of a non-disclosure agreement between the military and its personnel not to share this information? And this is why I'm, I'm, I'm questioning it, because this is just incredible. If this is true, folks, this is just life-shattering, history-shattering. But how is he able to say all of this? Is it because the government thinks nobody's going to believe him? This sounds like science fiction. Let him speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, in his case, he says that when he was 17 years old, uh, that he was made to sign a bunch of non-disclosure agreements um, as as part of his recruitment into this secret space program. Uh, but you know, at that time, he was legally a minor, so now he feels that he feels that he's not obliged uh, to honor those, uh, honor that non-disclosure agreement. And in any case, uh, he has been prompted uh, by senior figures in this secret space program that he served in to disclose. So he actually has been given kind of like the go-ahead. So in that sense, he's not so much a whistleblower as an insider. Interesting. So those agreements were signed before he was an adult, so they're invalid, basically. Exactly, yes, uh, because uh, by law, you need to be at least uh, 18 years old to be able to sign into some sort of contractual binding uh, or contractual agreement with the uh, U.S. government or any um, government agencies. And so uh, he was a minor. His parents didn't sign off. So uh, so therefore, he doesn't regard those non-disclosure agreements as as binding and uh, and in any case, He's been given a thumbs up to disclose this material anyway. We'll go back to Corey Good's story later, but let's go in chronological order, more or less, just to give a, a better perspective. We've discussed this before, but it's important to refresh our minds. Let's begin with the Thule Society. What is this Thule Society, and is it still active? Uh, well, the Thule Society was a secret society established in uh, in Germany in the uh, 1900s. And after the uh, collapse of Germany during the First World War, the Thule Society was very prominent in in helping uh, rebuild uh, Germany um, in terms of getting a new political leadership on board. Uh, The Thule Society itself uh, believed that they uh, were in touch with or had information about an ancient underground civilization uh, that was connected with ancient Hyperborean civilization in Northern Europe, uh, whose capital was Ultima Thule. And so that's where you get the Thule Society name from. Um, and so the Thule Society, they sponsored uh, some some very interesting projects. One of their more esoteric projects was uh, this uh, psychic by the name of Maria Osic, who uh, was claiming to be in communication with a group of extraterrestrials 
who had all of this advanced technology that they wanted to basically hand over or transmit to humanity. And so she took all this information down in automatic writing and she then, uh, with the help of the Thule Society, was able to get some uh, scholars, some German scholars who could recognize this uh, automatic writing because it was written in a language that she didn't understand. And they identified it as Sumerian. And what they realized was that uh, this this um, channeled information was actually the instructions for building a spacecraft uh, or more correctly a space-time travel device and so then with the help of some prominent Thule Society members she got some support from uh, key people scientists to build this device which by the early 1930s uh, was functional. So the, the Rural Society that she formed that was dedicated to building these uh, these kind of space-time devices, that uh, they had succeeded in, in developing some early prototypes by the early 1930s. Uh, but then uh, in 1933, uh, Hitler came to power and he basically subsumed all of this research, all of the projects that uh, Orsich was involved in, that the Thule Society had sponsored, um, into the program of the uh, the Third Reich, um, trying to militarize this so that uh, they could win the war or, or basically use it for uh, war preparations. I've seen photographs of Germans going to certain places around the world in what seemed to be Indiana Jones-like expeditions. You probably have seen those pictures too. And I believe the organization was the Ananerb. Well, we're just having a hard time pronouncing it. Why did they choose these locations? I believe Tibet was one. How did they choose these locations? How do you think? Do you think the advanced technology they created was due to the ancient artifacts or information that they found? Uh, well, that's a that's an important part of all of this, uh, Mel, because uh, the SS Anunnaki, uh, they were the kind of scientific and educational uh, branch of the Nazi SS, and their job was to basically go out there and find any ancient records or manuscripts or technologies even that uh, cast some light on uh, on the Aryan ancestry. Uh, because, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Thule Society believed that uh, uh, Aryans uh, were descendants or were connected in some way to these ancient Hyperboreans. And so this was something that the uh, SS Anunnaki were uh, actively studying. And, and one of the things that uh, they understood about advanced technologies was that uh, there was a very strong consciousness component to it all. So they understood from the very beginning, and this goes back to um, uh, Maria Osic and her kind of esoteric uh, communications, that in order to understand these ancient technologies dating back tens of thousands of years from ancient civilizations that have long been forgotten or gone underground, that it wasn't just um, a matter of kind of like Newtonian sciences, studying, understanding physical laws and understanding how technology works, but you also needed to understand consciousness. You also needed to develop consciousness because consciousness was, was kind of like the tool, was kind of like... Uh, the mechanism by which these technologies 
could work. So, you know, if I was to use a metaphor like like a horse and carriage, um, like um, the carriage might be compared to modern technology and the horses would be like consciousness. And depending on how you utilize your consciousness, you know, you could take that technology anywhere. And so the Germans believed that through understanding the kind of interface between human consciousness and advanced technologies, you could build um, a society that was able to utilize technologies that the rest of the world didn't understand at all and so this was what um, this is what the Anunnaki society was doing uh, and that was kind of like predicated on the earlier efforts of uh, Osage and the Thul society and the Brill society so that by the time uh, the Germans uh, began developing uh, flying saucer technologies uh, for the war effort um, they, they certainly understood that uh, consciousness was an in- a key ingredient to all of this and uh, they were making some powerful inroads but it still took them some time uh, which is why uh, they decided that you know just before the second world war began they decided that they would um, start separating the uh, spacecraft research that was happening in germany itself with uh, another project that would be begun in antarctica and we'll be dissecting. This is just fascinating. I'm thinking of Pinamunda, the island that it was the, the the Soviets, the ones that actually captured that island after the war. So who knows what they found there? But Michael, when I think of a military base, I think of large infrastructure, perhaps underground. This requires a lot of raw material, equipment, and especially manpower. And at the risk of sounding insensitive, folks, and, and you know, these days you have to watch what you say so you don't offend people. Did they use slave labor in Antarctica to build those bases? Since we know they used slave labor during World War II. And if so, who were the slaves and were corporations, say, Siemens, involved? Yes, well, unfortunately, this is one of the aspects of what's been happening in Antarctica, which which is pretty disturbing. Now, I mean, it's a matter of historical record um, that there were major German uh, corporations that used slave labor uh, during the Second World War, um, and that this was part of uh, their requirements to meet uh, the Nazi war goals, uh, the war objectives, and in terms of being able to produce uh, the necessary amount of tanks and aircraft and other kind of weapon systems uh, because a lot of the able-bodied German men were being sent off uh, to the uh, various war fronts and because uh, women, according to Nazi ideology, were not supposed to work in factories but were supposed to stay at home and raise children like what was happening in the United States and Britain and other allied powers, um, the Germans decided that they would basically use slave labor. And uh, interestingly, there's a book uh, by the German, German armaments minister, Albert Speer, who wrote a number of books, but one in particular really uh, outlined what the Nazi SS had in mind in terms of a, a post-war economy, which would continue to use slave labor. So the Germans really wanted to establish the Third Reich on this principle of slave labor. So it's not surprising that with the um, outposts that were established in 
Antarctica that slave labour was involved. Uh, this was one of the things that was just a continuation of the existing German policies um, that major companies, IG um, Farben, uh, Dornier, um, Siemens, um, AEG, um, all of these companies. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it because you don't want to believe. You want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.